Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Parents, do you ever feel like passing ships in the night while trying to raise active kids with your spouse or partner? How can we stay better connected during the stages of life so we don't lose each other once our kids are grown. Dr. Jennifer Dragonette is a licensed psychologist with expertise in relationship dynamics and trauma and is also trained in Gottman Method Couples Therapy, specializing in working with families. According to Jennifer's work, awareness sits at the forefront of change, especially regarding listening. The key to being an active listener is being aware of the thoughts going on within your mind but having the ability to hear, and more importantly, validate what your significant other is telling you. Jennifer talks in depth about family systems, what they are, tips for building them, and how they can help us to avoid avoidable suffering. However, similar to how we change and our kids grow, family systems need to be adaptable and change with the shifting stages of life. Please enjoy this conversation with Jennifer Dragonette. Well, Jennifer Dragonette, welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Thanks so much, Paul. I'm really excited to be here. I am always excited to talk to people like you that are in the field of psychology and therapy, because as we were just talking before I hit the record button, um, I think people have this, this stereotype of what a financial advisor is, and it's mainly focused on picking stocks or, you know, numbers. And over the last couple of years in my own practice with Tama, I've really tried to get people focused on what I call the emotional side of the, of the ledger, where it's, what's your purpose? What are your supporting objectives? And I always come back to this family structure because I primarily work with families, thus the term family office, that, you know, if things aren't right at home, the likelihood that you're going to make good financial and personal decisions um, aren't very aren't very high. So um, having somebody like you and your expertise to come on and, and talk and share um, how couples can work together, parenting. Um, I know my audience is mostly parents, finds immense value in that. So thank you for being on. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, it's a it's a great topic to talk about. And it's interesting. I don't think our jobs are all that different in some ways. We're just kind of helping people find their true north and and moving toward it, whether that's in in terms of their mental health and well-being, their relationship satisfaction, or their financial health, like you do. Yeah. And there's I think there's growing research around that very topic, Jennifer, on the the and and it's sometimes it's a really fine line between the psychological part of what I do, behavioral finance, if you will, and the actual numbers part. And uh, I I think with, with me, I take a really personal hands-on approach with, with the families I work with and let them know very early on in the, in, in the relationship that 
this is how I am. This is how I'm going to be a part of your family and you're going to be a part of mine. And not everybody necessarily likes that. And that's okay. Cause just like, I'm not a good fit for everybody. And maybe you're not a good fit for, you know, all the, the, the people that, that come to you. So, um, but let's start with your background. Cause I'm always fascinated on how people get to where they're at today. So talk about how you became or came into the world of psychology and, and therapy. Sure. Um, well, I'm one of those odd people. I've I've kind of known all my life that I wanted to be a psychologist. It's a it's a bit of the family profession. My dad's brother and sister are both psychologists, and so it was one of those jobs I knew about growing up. Uh, I remember being a kid on the playground and playing therapist and assigning <laughs> you know, run around the monkey bars three times and you'll feel so much better. Um, which is funny because it's actually not that far off from from what I tell people nowadays. We have to be active and move our bodies, but. Um, so I, I went up through school and uh, I resisted it for a while. I worked in the nonprofit sector right after college. I was a federal investigator for a couple of years. Um, and then I just realized what I want to be doing is directly helping people one-on-one -on -one with the things that are concerning them, depression, anxiety, relationship challenges. So I went back to graduate school. Um, got my doctorate in psychology. And uh, and then I worked in a bunch of different aspects of the field for a long time. I've worked with adolescents. Um, and I always came back to the idea of relationships as being really key for our health and well-being. So as I was going up through, through the ranks of uh, various larger health organizations, I, I remember getting kind of drawn into the leadership aspect of mental health and um, said to my my now husband at one point, like, shoot me if I ever move into leadership. And then of course I did. <laughs> and, um, and that was great. I spent several years in successively larger leadership roles within healthcare organizations, um, culminating in becoming the executive director for Newport Healthcare, which is a series of adolescent residential treatment centers. Um, so I, I founded the Northern California region of Newport Healthcare, opened up nine uh, residential facilities up here, and oversaw all of those operations for about three years. And then I had a real um, just a period of discernment and recognized that while I loved the mission, I loved the organization, I loved the work we were doing, I had gotten so far removed from why I got into the field that I, I really had a heart to heart with my husband and my family. And I realized I wasn't there for them or for myself in the way that I really wanted to be. And here I was working with all these families trying to, to you know, rejoin the family and keep them healthy, but I was barely home. And when I was home, I was working and it just, it all of a sudden, I realized it wasn't a fit for me anymore. And so I took a deep breath and took a leap out of the the leadership, the kind of executive corporate leadership track that I was on. Um, so I still am with that organization. I, I teach for them part-time. I work with their therapists. Um, but then I'm really focusing on my own private practice, which has been such joy for the past few years. Um, I have a thriving practice. I see individuals and couples and uh, particularly love doing that work with couples. I, I would say that's probably my specialty these days, along with trauma and anxiety. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with with me because I I often get that comment from Teresa often. God bless her soul being married to a, a financial advisor that does what I the type of work that I do because it's like often I hear like, you know, you you spend more time with other people's families than you do our own. And um, that's tough. It's, and she's absolutely right. Um, which is 
probably makes it even harder. So um, it's it's something that we've tried we've been trying to to work through and and transition. And I like how you just you went through your background because as I I think we were talking about this off off uh, recording as well is that you know this podcast has really turned into um, a podcast about people's life transitions and. You know, a lot of people, you know, have this idea of of transitioning into something different. Um, they don't necessarily know what that is. Um, I I know several of the families I work through work with going through that right now, and trying to to help just be a guide and really listen to what it is that they're saying and try to pick up on things that they they might not realize. And so I think that's really that I found personally um, the power of you know, working with a therapist, whether it's, uh, you know, individual one-on-one or, or family. And so um, I just, I, I just love the fact that this is what you do. And, and we're going to talk about this today. So why don't we dive in? And, and one of the, the first things I wanted to talk about kind of in that same vein is parents, especially today, like Teresa and I feel it, we feel like we're passing ships in the night, trying to raise like active kids. So I think you have three kids, right? I have two. Two. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you you know most most people know our my situation where I have this unique set of triplets plus one. But whether you have one kid, two kids, three kids, four kids, you know, active kids demand a lot of time and attention. And so how can spouses and partners continue to stay better connected during these really formative years from you know when their kids you know, all the way up to high school, because that's one of my biggest fears is like, you get so busy raising your kids that you forget that you have this other partner there with you. And that's one of the, I I pay a lot of, a lot of attention to statistics on marriage and divorce. And I see the big spike of divorce rates in, uh, in the fifties because people raise their kids, they're gone. And you look around like, you know, you, you don't, you don't know the other person anymore. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. I, I love that you're asking it that way that how did the parents stay connected? I think sometimes it feels like, like parents are trying to just kind of make it through those years, which is, is so heartbreaking for so many reasons, you know, kids are wonderful and fun and you know all, all of the reasons that we have kids, we want to enjoy that time with them. And just like you say, we don't want to get to the end of our child raising years and look around and not recognize this person that we're living with and just kind of roommates with. Um, so it is something I talk a lot about with the couples that I work with. It, it is absolutely critical that the parents' relationship remain a top priority. And, and I hesitate to say this, but maybe even the top priority in the household. Um, it's so easy. I don't mean easy, like, you know, easy to do, but <laughs> it's so tempting to focus all of our emotional attention on our kids and they'll, they'll eat it up. They'll soak it up. And yet we are raising adults. And I think that that's so important to always hold on to that our children, we have to get to know them at every different stage of their, of their development. You know, a two-year-old is different than an eight-year-old who's different than a 14-year-old. And most of the time we can track that, you know, we're, we're trying to, maybe we lag behind by a couple of years and they have to remind us, mom, I'm not that small anymore. <laughs> um, but typically we're, we're tracking those changes with our kids, but we don't always track it with our partners. 
And I think that that's a really important piece to hold on to. We change. I'm different than I was a couple of years ago. You're different than you were. Teresa's different than she was a couple of years ago. And it really is important to, to pay focused attention to continuing to get to know each other. Um, just the way you get to know your friends, asking questions about what lights you up and, and what was hard about the day. Um, and keeping that priority of the relationship it helps me to remember that I want to have a relationship that is the kind of relationship that I want my kids to have, you know, on those days when it's hard to prioritize. And I feel like I'm choosing between my husband and my kids. I want them to look back and say, you know, my, my parents had a great relationship. I grew up in a household where there was a lot of love. Um, there was affection. They were kind to each other. They laughed and had fun together. They went on adventures together. Um, even if that means that sometimes we do it without them, even if it means that, you know, sometimes we have date nights or that there are things that that the parents are doing that the kids aren't involved with. I really think that that's actually okay. And it's healthy for kids to see that parents have a life outside of them. They have interests and activities that they enjoy. I'm dragging my kids with me on rock climbing trips because I want them to know that I'm a human, an adult who has interests. And, and I don't think that it helps our kids to focus everything in on trying to cater to where they are. In fact, it, it makes them a little bit confused because kids want boundaries. They really want to know where do we where do we bounce off of in this house? What are the limits? What are the expectations for me? Um, and so part of that is parents having a loving relationship, the adults in their household having a loving relationship. I think passion doesn't have to fade. You know, for for parents, often we've been married for a long time. And in the beginning of a relationship, there's this limerence phase where we feel quite literally crazy, right? If anybody's been in the, in the beginning of a relationship, you don't eat, you don't sleep, you don't think about anything else except this person. And that's uh, not sustainable, right? It doesn't last forever. And so then people sometimes get a little panicky when that fades, but that's meant to fade. It doesn't have to mean that your passion or your love or your affection for each other fades. And so I often think about this and, and describe this to the couples I work with that I think of a relationship kind of like a big sphere. And, and at the bottom, this foundational piece uh, is the friendship and the knowing of each other. Um, I've been trained in, in Gottman Method Couples Therapy. They talk about this as the love maps, just really knowing each other's world. And, and like I said, knowing this human that we're living with, we're, they're not just our roommate, right? We've chosen them for a reason. If we can't remember why we chose them, maybe we would you know benefit from the help of some couples therapy, which is a great thing to do. Um, but there's also the the top of the sphere, which is the erotic side. And I don't mean erotic just in terms of sex. I mean like the in loveness side. And that's the part that I think sometimes fades out of relationships, especially when there are kids and busyness and activities, is we forget that we're also in love with this person and that we've chosen them out of all of the humans in this whole world to be our partner. And so making time for that space too, making time for dates, making time for experiencing pleasure together, whatever that means, whether it's a good meal or a massage or just physically being intimate, it's actually good for kids to know that their parents set aside time and space for that. That's what we want for them too, right? When we think about them becoming adults at some point. Um, and then I think just on logistical sides, a lot of the disagreements I see between couples are things that are so solvable. Um, so thinking again about the Gottman approach, 
there's kind of this two thirds, one third approach uh, or, or rule of thumb, which is a third of the time we can solve the problems that come up. It's it's a, something we can compromise on. It's something that keeping a family calendar might solve. Like, oh, I, I forgot about this soccer game, but there it is on the calendar. I see it now. And that means two thirds of the time, it's more of a perpetual conflict. It's something that we're going to get gridlocked on, not because our relationship is in trouble, but because we're humans who have different backgrounds, who come into our relationships with different backpacks full of stuff. And so I always say, solve the solvable problems, figure out what it is. Is this a problem we can solve and compromise around? Or is this something that we need to start recognizing, you know what, this is that argument that we always have because we're us. If I had a different partner, I would have a different perpetual conflict. But the simple fact of having a perpetual conflict is not a red flag. It just means that we have to be able to talk about it and learn to have language around it and sometimes even label it like, oh, this is the thing that we're doing. This is our thing. Here we go again. How do we talk about it and step back from it rather than it becoming a, a panic kind of a state for us? When when I think about doing like the hard work of of therapy, I think of... I think the challenge is if if you wrote a script to somebody who said, take this pill and it'll solve your, your, your relationship issue with your spouse. But so that that's easy. But if you said, take five minutes at the end of the day and have a conversation with your spouse, partner, significant other seems just as easy, but is much harder than taking that, that simple medication. Mm-hmm. Why, why is that? Do you, do you have a silver, silver bullet on that one, Jennifer? Isn't that the funniest thing? And again, this is the person we chose, right? Yeah. And yet sometimes our nervous system reacts as though we are hunting or being hunted when we're talking to this person. So I actually think that's a framework that that is helpful to think about is what's happening in my body um, you know, being mindful of that. And, and I know mindfulness is, is kind of a buzzword these days. When I say mindful, I mean, paying attention on purpose in the present moment. Awareness. Just, exactly. Just what am I actually noticing here? And oftentimes we are not super mindful of what's happening in our body. And we are governed in many ways by our nervous system. And that's an old system for us. So we've, we've been, evolving for many, many years to have this nervous system that reacts super quickly to any sign of threat. And it makes sense that relational threat is just as significant to us as the threat of being hit by a car as we cross the street. Because if we trace it back, our relationships are vital and and critical to our survival. If, If we didn't have a tribe back in the day, we would die. And so when we perceive a relationship challenge, it's going to flood our nervous system just as fast as being chased by a tiger or being about to be hit by a car. And that's really important to be mindful of because if we are flooded, which is that sensation, we can probably all think of how that feels. If, if you start to get that look from your spouse or you're starting to get into We just argument. experienced this yesterday in the car right? driving. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Right. You're like, oh no, here it's coming, right? You can feel it in your body. Um, that's the same exact system that's flooding you if if you're trying to get out of danger or you're trying to run. But sometimes when we're sitting with our spouse, it doesn't feel like that should be happening. And so we try to deny that that's happening. And so we force ourselves to sit with this 
just incredible amount of stress chemistry happening in our body and try to be calm and try to connect, try to make eye contact. But inside we're like, oh no, oh no, oh no, right? We're just like, get me out of here. And so my recommendation is don't have conversations in that state. Again, simple, but not easy. So the mindfulness piece kind of step one is noticing when that's happening for you. And the way our systems work, that tends to happen very quickly. We don't necessarily have a slow ramp up like, oh, I might be getting a little flooded or a little anxious. So that's something that you can practice individually. And also as a couple is just noticing, okay, I'm getting a little flooded. I might need to step out. I have to come back because if we don't come back, that's also problematic. But I I always want to give people permission to take a 20 minute break do some physical activity, get rid of those stress hormones, take a walk around the block or something, or go do a bunch of jumping jacks or exercise and come back into the conversation in a calmer state. So that's, that's a piece of it. And then, um, you know, being mindful about what are our goals in these moments, Um, you know, really looking at when, when we're trying to spend time connecting with our partner, that's an investment. (laughs) And I know that we, we, we were just talking about financial investments it's both, right? Yes. (laughs) Divorce is expensive, right? And to think of it in those terms, it's that kind of investment. But those few minutes of connection, when we really can be in that mindful state, um, you know, the Gottmans talk about small things often. And it's not always about those, you know, standing on the front lawn with a boombox in your hands, you know, blasting a song kind of moments. Uh, It's not always about the grand gesture. Relationships are maintained by, a loving look across the kitchen or flirting or, you know, a touch of the shoulder as you walk past or a little love note in the morning or a text during the day saying, Hey, I'm thinking about you. How's your day? That's actually how we know that we're important to this person. And again, we do these things with our kids, right? We, we, we don't let our kids walk past us typically without saying hello or making eye contact or say, how was your day? But we'll do this with our partners because we kind of assume that this love is immutable and then it's devastating and, and so heartbreaking when it starts to fade, but it's not actually that hard to maintain. It's just these small investments over time. And then noticing, are we in the state to have a big conversation? If we're not in the right state, let's pause and, and gently separate and come back when we're in a better state so that we can actually hear each other. Because the other thing I want to say about the nervous system is when we're in that flooded, AKA fight or flight mode, we are only operating on essential functions. So we don't hear, we don't see particularly well, our vision narrows, you know, anybody who's been afraid at any point in their life can track this. Our our stomach gets upset. And all of that is because we don't need to be able to digest our food. If there's a tiger chasing us, we don't need to be able to stop and reason with the tiger and help them see our side of things. We need to get the heck out of there. Right. Right. And, and so, you know, trying to have a conversation in that state, it's not only going to probably make us say things we'll regret, but we're literally not hearing in the first place. And so if you've ever had that experience where someone says, well, you told me this and you're like, I didn't say that. That's probably because we didn't literally hear during those conversations. Yeah, when you're when when you're describing that, I'm thinking of Danny Kahneman's work, like System One, System Two. You're shaking your head. Yep. The other thing I was thinking about when when you were giving that example is I remember reading this book to my kids when they were growing up called "How Full Is Your Bucket?" and you know, constantly are you are you making deposits in somebody's bucket or are you 
making withdrawals from somebody's bucket. And, you know, I remember trying to ingrain that concept into my kids at an early age. I think they've kind of lost it now, but, you know, I think it's the same concept with, with, you know, our relationships with our spouse or, you know, partners is, um, you know, are we making those investments? And to be honest with you, I not feel guilty. I'm like, I don't, I don't think I've been doing a very good job of making investments lately with, with Teresa. Um, and so that it, but again, like it comes back to, okay, I'm having this conversation with you. I'm making myself more aware of it. So now I, what do I do with that? How do I, how do I take that awareness, Jen, and make turn it into an actionable item? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. And what I want to say is it's not too late. So if, you, if you're sitting there thinking, oh, no, I haven't been doing this, fantastic. And that's actually part of mindfulness, whether we're doing a, a meditative practice or a relationship practice. People often feel like I'm not good at this because I my mind wanders or my attention wanders or I make mistakes. And, and my response is, that's fantastic. That moment that you recognized you weren't mindful is when you were mindful, right? So that is your cue to say, okay, I haven't been doing this. I want to do this. Great. So your question is now what? Part of the key to having conversations is being able to listen. And so that's why my advice about not having these conversations while flooded um, you know, is so important. So when we eventually are in that state where we can sit and talk, um, one of the things I do in couples therapy that can absolutely be done at home is to have a dialogue where one person is the speaker and one person is the listener. And this has been done in various forms of couples therapy throughout time. Um, I like to use a type of dialogue called an imago dialogue, which really boils things down. Um, and it feels kind of clunky at first. And yet all the couples that I use it with, and I use it in my own relationship as well, report that it is so calming. And essentially it looks like one person saying is now an okay time for a dialogue. And the other person says yes or no, let's do it later. Um, And then you just present little snippets of information, a sentence or two at a time, and then pause for the other person to say something like, okay, so what I hear you saying is this. And the person who's listening is simply there to listen and reflect back. And then once all has been said, you may go back and forth several times, that person summarizes And then this is important. They validate. So they'll say something like, given what I know about you, that makes sense because, and then I imagine you might be feeling X, Y, and Z. Is that right? And so that whole process can just take a couple minutes. It doesn't have to be really lengthy, but what it does is the person who's giving the information gets to say their piece without having their partner interrupt them or saying, yeah, me too, or, or, but, 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 right. And the person listening has to really sit and listen because they know they're going to have to summarize it. They know they're going to have to validate it. It's tough. (laughs) It's tough. And it's also very freeing because of course you can switch then and you can say your piece, but it takes the flood out of that conversation. And oftentimes, and I've experienced this myself, the response afterwards is, I think that's the first time I've really heard you. I think that's the first time you've really heard me. And I firmly believe that most couples are not that far off in terms of their goals and their values and what they want from each other. But we get into this defensive space. And I know you mentioned you're you're familiar with Gottman's work. Um, Defensiveness is one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So if if we start having defensiveness in our conversations, that's a good sign we want to stop that conversation and, and come back at a different time. And, and defensiveness is, is a tricky one because it's very tempting. We think that if we can just explain our side of things, that it'll make this better. 
The problem is that when we move into a defensive mode, when we start to try to explain what we're actually conveying to our partner is my feelings are more important than yours, or I'm not actually interested in what you're telling me, right? Let me tell you how I feel. And so it does the exact opposite of what we're trying to do. And it's so well-intended. And I really truly believe that most couples, I, I know there are couples who are in abusive situations and this is not the case, but most couples are well-intended. They want their relationship to work. And so some of these are just their habits, their, their kind of ticks that we do, or there's this kind of subtle one-upmanship in a conversation. And so when one person gets to just talk and the other person gets to listen, it helps to, to reduce some of that and then help people um, and this is this is another um, imago therapy approach. Help people actually start to heal the wounds that they brought into the relationship in the first place. Um, you know, relationships can make those wounds bigger, or they can actually help heal and and repair some of our early attachment ruptures and and some of the pain that we walk around with as as humans in this world. So, for our listening audience, because they can't see me, just bury my head in my, in my hand when you're telling me that or going through that. I'm like. Oh, I'm like, I get so defensive. I get so defensive. I, and I know it, it goes back to that awareness in, 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 but it, so that's where I've always struggled. It's like, okay, I, I think I've gotten better at a point of being aware, but then I, I haven't taken that next step to really uh, taking action on that. And I think going back to that whole listening um, exercise that you were talking about, I find that challenging because my mind's going a thousand miles a, a minute thinking of like what I want to say and get out, but that's not how that's supposed to work. Like you need to get calm, get present and and not focus on the thoughts going in your head, but on the words coming out of the other person's and, and under, again, really listening. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's exactly the, the point there is because we're going a million miles a minute. We have all these things we want to say. And so if if our partner's talking to us and we're getting ready to say things to them, what is not happening is either person listening, right? So we're saying great things, but we're not hearing any of those things. And and I always say this to my couples that I work with, that it's like there's this psychic scoreboard, you know, it's like you her yeah. and you're backing up the points. And but by the way, there's a, there's a third column, which is the relationship. And so when, when the two of you are racking up points, the relationship is not racking up any points. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's about the relationship. You know, I could give you a, a, a point for every time you're right. And I could give her a point for every time she's right. And it doesn't matter because you want the relationship to be right at the end. Right. So one of the things that you mentioned earlier, and I didn't, I'm I'm glad we're going to come back to this now is you talked about structure because I remember when our triplets and then Mackenzie, when we had her, uh, were just obviously newborns, toddlers, like we had to have structure. Like when we, I, both Teresa and I felt that when we lost our structure, that's like when we really struggled as a family unit, as individuals and as a couple. Um, and I saw in some of your previous posts, um, that I read that you've referenced this family system. Can you dive into that a little bit? What does that What does that mean? What's it entail? Mm-hmm, sure. So, a family system is just a broad term for the idea that that we don't operate as single units in the world. We are part of systems, and and there are 
business systems. You know, if you work with with coworkers, that's a system. Um, and families are a system, and it's in many ways the most important system. So we had a family system that we grew up in. We have family systems that we have developed as adults with our kids, and and I like to think of family systems as like a set of gears. So they're all working together. You've got all the teeth going, but sometimes they're not producing what we want them to produce. And often in family systems, people can take on defined roles, especially if there's you know anything going on in the family system, like mental health challenges or addiction, or um, you know people who just have tougher childhoods themselves coming up into that system. And and then the the people in the family system can kind of organize around any challenges. And that's good in a way because it keeps the system moving. It keeps everybody, you know, seeming okay. But the problem is that that then sometimes there can also be this identified problem in the system and it can change from time to time. Oh, this kid is having a challenge or, you know, mom or dad is having a challenge. And so we want, we have this urge to like pluck that gear out of the system and go get them all fixed up and then bring them back into the system. But the problem is that just like a set of gears, if we get one spinning the other direction and we put them back in the same old gear system, it's going to jam up. So if there's any problem in the family, the whole family really needs to be a part of the solution. And there are, you know, structural pieces that I'm that I'm happy to talk about with with family systems of just how to set up your family more for success. Um, and you know, first and foremost, when I think of a family system, I often think of it in terms of, is there a problem, right? That, that's often when people come to me is that there's some sort of a challenge in the system. And um, I, I will have a lot of parents, for example, come to me and, you know, can you just work with my kiddo who's, who's having this problem? And I often say, well, how's your relationship? Because it's, it's part of this, right? You know, yeah. our kids are looking to us and, and that's not to say, and I, Parents do not need any more blame in this world. So it's not to blame parents for, for what's happening, but to pull back a little bit and just say, well, what's happening in the system? You know, if we have a, a teenager who we want to take on more responsibility, and at the same time, we have a parent who will not let go of any control in the household, that's not going to happen. Similarly in couples, if and this is this is a common perpetual gridlock problem, like I talked about earlier, where there's one parent who um, feels so frustrated because they feel like they're doing everything in the family, and then the other parent who feels so frustrated because they feel like they're kind of treated like a kid and not allowed to step up and do anything. And you can imagine the stories we tell each other or tell ourselves about what that means. You know, I, I use that phrase a lot. Like what the story I I'm telling myself <laughs> is you're irresponsible, right? The story I'm telling right. myself is you're controlling and nagging, right? And that's a system. So for the system to change, we can't just make that one person more responsible or we can't just make that other person less controlling. They both have to work on shifting at the same time and have that conversation be really overt. Because again, if one person suddenly becomes more responsible, but the other person hasn't become less overbearing, uh, there's going to be friction because there's not room for that in the relationship. So that's what I mean about a family system is, is everything kind of shifting and changing at the same time. And with children involved, that system's going to have to change over time because they grow. A two-year-old is different than an eight-year-old and what the parents are asked to do and what the child is asked to do is going to shift over time. And some of the friction I see in family systems is when they don't adapt to those changes or when they don't adapt to changes for the parents, you know, big shifts in jobs and yet the family system didn't move and people are then feeling like there's a lot of ruptures or, or friction in that system. 
is there anything you, you, I, I forget the term that you use, but if you can go back there, is there anything from a specific system standpoint that you could help provide? Like, like how do you, how do you like from a, like I, I go back to like my firm, even like when I worked in corporate, like we had workflows, we had processes, systems, but I, I struggle with like, how do I, cause those seem really, really tangible to me. But like when I'm looking at my own family or when other people are looking at their family, th- those don't seem to be as tangible. Is that, I don't know if that makes sense or not. Mm-hmm. It does make sense. It does. And um, so, so I get like having like a calendar, like we used to have this communication board, like where we would write everything out and somehow we got away from that. And we we probably need to come back because obviously now we have these four kids going in all different directions. But I, I think what you're, I think maybe that's what you're talking about, but I think you're talking about something even more in depth than that. Yes and no, that that's actually a really good start. And sometimes again, just like with, with couples, sometimes it's about these small things. So having a family calendar um, is, is actually really important for a lot of families to, to just not have misunderstandings. Again, avoiding avoidable suffering when we possibly can, solving the problems that we can solve so that we have a little bit more space for those more challenging problems. Um, boundaries are really important. And I am a big believer in family meetings, if, if possible, you know, having a time set aside every week where the family comes together and just says, how are we doing? You know, what's on tap? I mean, not just Kind of structurally planning for the week, what whose soccer game is coming up and what music lesson is coming up. But you know, how are we all doing? How are things working in the household? I think kids can be brought into those conversations much younger than we tend to think they can. Um, they're watching and and they have opinions about how things go in the house. And parents always get to decide and need to decide. So we, we can't put that on the kids. Um, but sometimes it is that that process of stepping back and saying, you know, wait, who's in our house right now? You know, what's happening with, with us? Is somebody having depression right now? Is somebody having relationship challenges? Um, You know, kids start to date and that changes how they are relating to their parents and their siblings. Um, Kids have friendship challenges that are devastating and we want to keep track of that and know what's going on. And then, like I mentioned, boundaries are so critical um, and boundaries are both our individual boundaries and also the boundaries that we we set with other people and with the family. So boundaries can look like letting people in closer. You know, if you have a family member who's really withdrawing, that can be something that happens in a family system. And and then we don't know, do we need to, to approach you more and kind of try to bring you back into the family? What do you need from us? Um, I'm a big fan of clear communication. So trying to have these conversations, like I'm noticing that you don't want to spend as much time with us. Tell us about that. That's okay if that's what you need right now, but let's be overt about it rather than just letting you fade off in the distance and we we don't see you again. Um, and then, you know, like you said, having kids have specified roles in the family, um, kids like doing stuff. In the family, they like having jobs, even if they rail against it. <laughs> right? Mine you know, seem to rail against that. <laughs> they 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 will seem to rail against it, and and it's it's still one of these things where what we really want, if we pull back and look at, at attachment, you know, when we're growing up, what we want from our parents is, on the one hand, we want to be seen and known and loved for who we are, and to really have this expression of affection, and. We want to have high expectations set for us. 
And one without the other really doesn't feel good. And we can all probably think of families where there's lots and lots of affection, but not very many expectations as kind of passive parenting. Um, it feels great to the kids for a while, but it doesn't feel so good as they grow up. The opposite, we can think of families where there's a lot of expectation placed on kids and not a lot of affection expressed to them. That also doesn't feel so good, right? And then of course, having zero of those things feels terrible. So for kids, knowing that we have high expectations for them can look like Hey, can you please empty the dishwasher tonight? Or, you know, I'm not feeling so great. Could you help me make dinner? Even if it's just hot dogs and, you know, mac and cheese or something, um, letting kids be a part of the family. And, you know, this is something honestly that, that my husband has helped me with so much because he always is one or two steps ahead of me. I'm like, are they ready for that? And he's like, let's, <laughs> let's try it out. And sure enough, they are, and they feel so good about it. <clears throat> and so there are ways to, you know, sometimes we have to check our assumptions, you know, kind of take a big step and, and deep breath and let them do something that we didn't think they were ready for and watch and support them and then check in with them about that. How was that afterwards? Just like we'd want to check in with each other, you know, in a relationship. Okay. We, we tried something new where we went on a different type of adventure. How was that? Um, because then we can adjust the boundaries and the expectations for the family. I think that's, and I don't know if it's, I don't think it's probably unique whether you have a family of four or a family of five or six or more. Um, but I think as, as my kids have gotten older, I think it has become a bigger challenge of trying to keep us together as a family of six or a unit of six and doing things together because trying to get four kids to agree on doing anything is like nearly impossible. And for Teresa and I feel like, and we, we talk about this, it's gotten easy for us to say, okay, well, we're just going to leave our two boys here at home and we're going to take the girls and do this. Or I'm going to you know, take the girls to, to the swim meet and Teresa will stay back with the boys because taking them to swim meet is just a disaster. And I, well, it's, it makes it easier for, for us we really, I think, are lacking that cohesion of doing things as a family unit. And it's, I don't know what the answer is. And there's the challenge there, but that, that's the thing. I don't know necessarily what the answer is to, to help ourselves. And, you know, when I'm talking to other families that are struggling with the same thing to, to get people, to get the family like back together, back interested in something that's, I guess, at least tolerable for everybody to do at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is hard. And I think it's absolutely okay to divide and conquer like you're doing. And um, actually some families don't do enough of that. And, and so they try to do everything together and that's not realistic either. Pick six random people in the world and tell them they have to do everything <laughs> together. I had this thought the other day, I was watching my, my two boys and thinking, you know, siblinghood is, is kind of like an arranged marriage. Like you're just put together. You don't right. to each other, but I never thought about that way. <laughs> spend all of this time together. Right? Um, so I think it's more about, you know, maybe in a family meeting or, or over a dinner, you know, what are, what are some things that we would all be willing to do together? Maybe we do it once a week or once a month, even yeah. where, where we have something to look forward to as a family. So we don't get too distant, especially as the kids get older, but there's not this enforced togetherness, which can also feel kind of phony and, and like a lot of pressure, you know, absolutely divide and conquer if that works for you and, and for your family and your kids have different interests 
and then trying to find something. And if, and if it's impossible to find something everybody agrees on, you know, maybe go old school and have, you know, everybody puts ideas in a, in a bowl and you pull out a piece of paper and we do that thing this week, you know, but just to have some expectation that there's going to be some togetherness and then, you know, sometimes that we're separate. Well, Jen, I think I still have like, I don't know, four or five more questions on my sheet, but I know that I cannot keep you for a, I only have you for a finite period of time, especially because I can see in the background, the sun's coming up in Northern California. So I I can't tell you how much I appreciate you getting up really, really early to, to have this conversation uh, with us, but um, which just means you'll be back on the show sooner than you expect. So, um, but I, I do like to close with, with this uh, final question that I ask um, all my guests, especially being a parent is what is the best thing about being a parent? I love this question. And, and it's so funny. Yes. We, we met very early this morning because I'm a parent and because <laughs> my kids are in the next room. Um, I, I love being a parent. It is so much fun. And yes, it's hard. You know, there are for sure those moments when I want to pull my hair out. Um, but more often than not, I am laughing. I'm amazed at watching them grow and change. And it keeps me honest, you know, in the field that I'm in and talking to parents and, and individuals all the time. And then I come home and I have to put those skills to use. Um, but I'm raising two incredible people and I, I just love watching them grow. I love watching them change and um, they are so smart and funny and they, they crack me up. Um, and I, I really, you know, they remind me about wonder and awe. You know, I think that's something that we can lose as adults, but kids have that and we'll walk around outside and they'll point something out to me and like, oh my gosh, I didn't even notice that. And so, you know, talk about mindfulness. Kids are mindful and I get to live with these living, breathing examples of that. And um, yeah, so I, I love being a parent. I think it's, it's just the best. And um, my kids are nine and 11 right now. So I'm right in it in those, you know, fun yep, ages. Sure are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, you know, we can miss it. Um, like it goes by so quickly and, and I don't want to be one of those people who says, you know, take, enjoy every moment of it because we, we don't, right? <laughs> there are hard times. Um, but I think if the overarching sense is gratitude, um, then we're going to remember that we get to have these this time with these people and they get to have this time with us and you know, they make us be the best versions of ourselves if we're paying attention. In the over two years of having the show, I love this question because I'm pretty close to 100 episodes now. I think you may be like 98 or 99. Um, and I've get I've got 98 or 99 different answers, and it's they're they're all terrific. And you know, going back to what we were talking about is like that active listening. That th- that is this is the part of the of our conversation that I have with everybody that I'm like I am like really honed in. I'm like hanging on every word because you know, especially with with how you described it all, like you you don't want to you don't want to miss. You're not going to get every moment. You don't want to, and you certainly don't want to miss them all. But I think that as I try to go back and look at my kids and think about how I was, and you know, I think you're to your point. Like we can we can outgrow that. Life can become so serious and so burdensome for us that we forget how to be like kids. And 
that's one thing that I will hang our conversation on and, and go back and, and try to have those moments with my kids. So um, Jennifer Dragonette, thank you so much for being on the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast. And I know I'm already looking forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Paul. Me too. Happy to come back anytime. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.